Welcome to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on Kei Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. Like a broken record, magically repaired. In Chinatown, Los Angeles, set your dial to 1630 AM or listen to the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. The show is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. And there you can find out more about our guests as you listen. Our guests today are Jeff Tuck and Christian Meyer. Jeff Tuck is a writer and artist and is the publisher of Notes on Looking, which is an online journal, and you can find that at notesonlooking.com. He, also with his husband David, organizes retreats in Parkfield, California. He's had two shows recently. One, uh, Your Shell is Made of Air at the Guggenheim Gallery at Chapman University and was featured at the uh, launch for the journal Baum Test. Baum Test? Baum Test. Baum Test at 435 Broadway in Los Angeles, California. Christian Meyer is an artist, musician, and publisher from Vienna, Austria, and he's here in Los Angeles on an artist residency, the Schindler Residency at the Mack Center. He has work and a show with the current Mack Center residents at the Mackey Apartments at 1137 South Cochrane. He also recently had a show at the Belvedere in Vienna called Muses et Muslis, which I may have mispronounced, but it also translates to uh, For the Muse and the Mules. Uh, Jeff Tuck and Christian Meyer, welcome to the people. Yay! Hello, hey. hello. Welcome, guys. So, Jeff, um, we recently published a book called Dreamscapes of Los Angeles, uh, an anthology of writing uh, and writings by yourself and numerous other artists on Notes, Notes on Looking. Can you tell me about that book? Dreamscapes of Los Angeles. Thank you, Matt. You you were generous enough. Once when I wandered into Young Chung's gallery, Commonwealth and Council, you were there, and you you saw my book that Young had a copy of, and you said, "I want to publish this." And and inside, I was leaping up and down because all I've ever wanted to do is be a published author, and so now I am. Um, that doesn't end the show because I've got more to back it up. <laughs> Here's <laughs> what happened: the book at Young Chung's, I sort of organized from already published writing on Notes on Looking with the intention that it would accompany an exhibition I was invited to do in Berlin. The exhibition in Berlin, the, the installation part that I did, was I made, um, I made paintings and made them into a bed. Um, I, I have, my past is such that the bed at night is a, it can be a very frightening place, it can be a wonderful place, it's where you make love, it's where you die, it's where you get raped, all those things happen in bed. Not always, but sometimes. And so I thought this is a supercharged symbol that I can use. Um, the writing in the book came from a group of artists I've been working with on notes for the past six months or a year. And they had each contributed things that seemed almost like stories, almost like fiction, but they weren't. They were, they were real stories. And so I gathered them up into this book and printed it in 26 copies and rushed off to Berlin made the, the paintings into a bed with like sheets that were paintings that people laid in and then paintings hanging as canopies that were like cheerful and attractive looking with all these cute little symbols on them that I used, these little characters, Polly and Drulis. Um, the invitation to viewers was to lie in my, 
my bed and read from my book of dreams. And and people did that. Um, real people got into my bed with my and paintings. what was the name of the piece? The name of the piece was Bingo Bongo Bed. How was that? Um, and so where, where did that name here come is, from? So here's more tangential information. Marcus Hersa, who curated the show at the Guggenheim, had a friend in Cologne when he was in school there who would pound a beer on the table and say, all right, it's bingo bongo. And it would mean like everything is okay. We're going to go and we're going to do this. And, and he told me this story and I thought, oh my God, I want that name. Can I use that? And so I did. And, um, and, and so that's where the book came from, was, was wanting to introduce myself to a European audience in a format they would know because Notes on Looking kind of gets read all over the world. And, and yeah, and it does. But for our listeners who, who don't know what it is or haven't experienced it yet, can you yeah. sort of just talk about Notes on Looking briefly, like what it is? and, and Can and, I talk? I'm yes. sure you can, but can, <laughs> please do. Okay, so yeah, Notes on Looking is... I mean, now it exists as an occasional, an occasionally contributed to journal. Um, I currently write things that sort of look like reviews but aren't. I don't call myself a critic. I don't think I have that kind of a, um, I don't have a scholarly background and I'm not really interested in it. What I do is write, um, what is the phrase I thought of today? I think of phrases all the time. I desperately want to keep them, but I can't. So experiential um, yeah, it's a more experiential writing about art. It's not based in art history. It's based in what's in front of a person and how it makes a person, me, feel or think. And I started it in 2007. How much do you want? I, in the old days, I was a collector with my partner, David. And we got invited to join this um, really exclusive group of collectors called the Felons of Contemporary Art. It was such a thrill. It was like, oh my God, we're fucking legit. This is amazing. So anyway, they invited us to join. They invited David to join the board because he's like the more substantial of the pair, I guess. I don't know. And David refused and said, look, why don't you invite Jeff to be on the board? So they invited me to be a member at large. I was a member at large, and I thought, these people are really nice and really sweet and they love what they're doing, but they're really disorganized, and I can take over. And so I had this secret plot. And two years later, I was voted president. Um, and so here's the, the like inside joke to this that none of the fellows actually knew or even know, is that at the time I was an administrative assistant in an office. I was like making copies. And I was president of the board of people who, people like, people who endow MOCA and things like that were looking to me as the president. Boy, was I squealing. <laughs> the first week I got to be president, they let me get hold of the email list. And I sent an email to 300 members telling them, here's what Dave and I saw last week. Here's what I think you should see. Here's the history of those artists. And within like six months, the email list had grown to 5,000 readers. And, wow. um, and so then I just like dove in and went crazy. Perfect. Well, Kristen, let's bring, let's yes. bring you in a little bit. You're at a residency at the Mac Center. I know it's more complicated than that, but do you want to talk about it a little bit? Just kind of catch everybody up with where you're at there. Yeah, I can describe a bit what it is. It's a residency that was, I think, started in the 90s, in the early 90s, and it's run by the Mac Center. So the Mac Center is a LA-based organization which is funded by the Museum of Applied Arts in Vienna. And um, it was the president of the time of the museum who had like a strong relation to Los Angeles, that he came here and he found the opportunity to buy a house built by Rudolf Schindler 
in the 30s, a pretty amazing house. And so he convinced the Austrian government to buy this house for a pretty cheap price at the time. And the idea was to, it, it's like an apartment house. So there are like five apartments in the house. And so his idea was, let's invite artists from all over the world to have a six month residency in Los Angeles and use the time to work and to live in the city. And since then they're doing it. And the idea was from the beginning, it, it should be a combination of artists and architects. So they always choose two artists and two architects for each group, which uh, stays here for six months. And so now I'm in the group, I think 30 something. <laughs> so pretty many people have been coming to LA through that program. And can you, can you tell us what you're doing there? Or is it a secret? No, it's not a secret. I mean, you apply there already with a project. So you have to apply, you give examples of your work and you give a short description of a project that you would like to realize during these six months and which you at the end have the possibility to show to the public and uh, which is actually happening right now while this show is broadcast. <laughs> it's on display right now. And uh, the project that I was proposing is that I wanted to research into time capsules uh, kind of all around Los Angeles because I was interested in the concept of time capsules and was interested why this is such an American phenomenon. It is? Which I it didn't is. know either. Isn't that weird? Yeah. It is. It's, like, it's, is it a very, it's a very 20th century American uh, thing too, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, you still find, you know, still time capsules being buried, but it's not this big thing anymore as it yeah. has been in like, let's say from the 40s till the late 80s or something. Why is that, do you think? It's American, North American. You know, I thought about this a lot and I don't have a real answer. I just have, you know, ideas. I think on the one hand, of course, the United States have been the country which after the Second World War was the leading country in the world and the ones who, you know, kind of pushed modernism onward the most in the world. So there was a big optimism uh, around here and optimism is obviously one thing which makes you think about what I'm having right now in my present might be interesting to the people in the future. Even and if it's 50 years in the future or 100 years in yeah, the future. Yeah, or like right. some of the most interesting ones are 5,000 years. Right. So an amazing long time. Do you think it has anything to do with like the, the youngness of the youth? The youth of the United States versus Europe? I, I think that's another reason. Um, like this different approach towards history and the feeling that, you know, there's something missing as... Um, in, in comparison to Europe, for example, with this long, long history. So <coughs> time capsules, in a way, are almost like an archaeology into the future. So you think of yourself already as a past somehow. Mm -hmm. And I think it's this idea of thinking that this 20th century or this modernist time is such an important and interesting and, and like, yeah. Can you tell us of a, of a couple time capsules that you're specifically looking at or? Well, I was, when I came here, I was mainly interested in time capsules that have been forgotten because this is something that often happens to time capsules. They've been buried somewhere and the people say, let's unbury it in 200 years, for example. But by the time this date comes, nobody remembers that this thing has been buried and it just stays in the ground. And I was interested in that. So I was looking at I was trying to find places where ca capsules have been 
buried and nobody ever unburied them at the time. And did you find some of those? I found some places, but I didn't find the actual time capsules because what you have to do then is like really dig in the yeah. ground and this is not an easy thing to do. For example, I was at one place in, in, um, in Hermosa Beach and I knew that there was a time capsule being buried at that building, which was something totally different at the time. Now it's a bank. <laughs> and the place where the time capsule most probably has been buried is now a parking lot. So you would have to... You, you know, can't just roll in there with a backhoe no, and a shovel. Of course, they don't, they don't let you do that. <laughs> but it brought me to some really interesting places. Do you think they just, like the one in the parking lot, what if it just like got dug up and disappeared and in the, the people in the who took over didn't even know it was there? I mean, is that in, that seems like an interesting idea, this notion that these people have of this positivism that there's a future and we're going to be part of it by doing this. And then 20, 20 years later, maybe even, because LA changes really fast, no one knows. Who cares? And they just dig it up and throw it away. Yeah, they could be exactly. buried in, in the corpse of the modernism that they had so much faith in. <laughs> yeah. For people to find Ooh. it, that very... Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> oh, my God. So... Is it too early to interject? Because when we've talked in the past, you mentioned this palm tree that somehow yeah. I've just like fallen I, in love with. This I, yeah, tree. I read about this and it's fascinating. I've I told tried the, to I've find it today. This. I work at USC. I went over there to look for it. <laughs> I've told this story like three find times in the last two days easily. You know, it's great. Yeah, yeah it's, sorry. It's, it's a super interesting story. I, I kind of stumbled upon this palm tree because I wanted to go to the Science Museum in Exposition Park. And I didn't use the official parking lot, but made street parking to save a little bit of money. And that's why I actually walked by this tree, which you normally don't do because it's on a spot where only cars pass by. Oh. And, and I've seen there's a little plate, there's like a stone next to the tree and there's a plate on it with the writing. So I was like, oh, let's look at that. And then I was reading this little text on the plate and it said, this is this tree which was standing in front of the arcade train station for 25 years. And then it has been brought over to Exposition Park on the 5th of September of 1914. And um, it, it has been loaded with all these sentimental ideas. And that's why we want to preserve it into the future and take good care of it. That's kind of the basics, basically the story that's written on that plate. And then I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. I want to know more about it. And then I started going into the archives and looking into this arcade arcade train station story and uh, what i found out is that this tree was really standing in front of the main entrance it was brought there in order to welcome all these people who were coming to la in the late 19th century by this idea of california being this tropical place obviously like you step out of the train station and there's a palm tree saying hello to this, Welcome. To this Free day. Free oranges. Yes, to this day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's why this tree is so loaded, and that's why it was preserved and it was not chopped down by the time when the train station was uh, um, uh, taken down. And it was just moved the one time? Twice, no, that's, right? that's what I found out later, because then I went uh, into forums of all these um, hobby uh, historians which have amazingly interesting uh, blogs out there sharing the information and going through archives of images and they helped me a lot in finding out more that this story goes even back much further because this tree has been moved to the train station already from another place in LA um, the so-called Hamel residency it was just one of the first uh, residencies um, residencies not residence residence yeah residence 
And um, it has been brought there most probably in the 1850s. And then there were images of that palm tree that go back until the 1870s, really early stereoscopic views where you could already see the tree being quite short still. And then you could find pictures in some other archives. It's, we're all talking about archives from LAPL, Mm -hmm. Los uh, Angeles US, Public Library, exactly, yeah. Yeah. U USC Library, um, all these public libraries, and they have all these huge, you know, collections of photographs of the past of LA. And then we could really find out that this tree was appearing in many photographs throughout all the history, kind of, of, of Los Angeles, but having been moved from side to side three times. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. And so how they describe it on this plate is he this tree can be looked at like a mute witness of the history of Los Angeles. And I kind of like this idea that on the one hand, it's just a palm tree like thousands of others here. But on the other hand, it's such a sp specific, special thing. It's 150 years old, too. Good Lord. It is. <laughs> That's yeah. cool. It was in front of somebody's house first, right? Yes. I seem to remember like a, I imagined a little boy who was looking out his bedroom window and seeing the tree. Exactly. With a fanciful imagination. Yeah. The arcade, was that the one on Olive, do you know? Olive Street? Yeah, it was. Cool. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's still there. It's really cool. You can go in and see. It's a really neat Art Deco arcade. Um, the, so the, but the palm tree becomes a metaphor for the time capsules, which are themselves a metaphor for the failure of modernism. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's true. <laughs> well, Jeff, you've, you've seen the work that Christian has done. Uh, like based around these ideas and, and these things that he's been talking about. Do you, do you want to speak to that work directly or just, just talk about it? Because I don't want to embarrass Christian and make him talk about his own work, so I'm going to put it on you. Yeah, no, what I've, what I've actually seen is our images he sh that Christian showed me of um, cornerstones and where um, time capsules have mm -hmm. been buried. And, and then all of a sudden there was a palm tree yeah. that he was talking about. And I sort of got lost halfway through. But I made the connection. And and you know another thing that's cool is that plaque you talked about. Don't you imagine there's a registry somewhere that numbers them and says number one is this and number two is that? Mm. But no, there's nothing. I mean, right? You had to look really hard to find it. No one in the city knows this. Yeah, kind it's, of. It's I mean, kind not of, on purpose. It's kind of forgotten. The, the story of that tree is kind of forgotten. And because there's no passes by there, only people in car. I think it's, you know, it's on like a little traffic island or something. Yeah, it's like where you enter with a car when you go to the to the, the science museum, the science museum or natural history museum parking lot. Yeah, and that's the only reason you you would enter there, and then you can drive in a circle around. It's like a yeah, like a meadow uh, in the middle, yeah. and you can drive around to get back out on Figueroa. And if you pass in a car, you have no chance to read anything on it. So that's why people forgot about it, and even the people from Exposition Park. You know the ones who uh, who work in the office, like uh, maintaining the park. When I called them, they were like, "What tree? What are you talking about?" Like, you know, even they didn't really care about it because I wanted to find out: uh, is there any special treatment for the tree? Do they preserve it in a special way? You know, and no, nothing. No, pathos, I tell you, pathos. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, is the tree going to figure into the work you eventually present? I mean, is that because you said time capsules? Yeah. And, you know, I know you have to sort of stick with your original plan, but it, I mean, it's as you said, it kind of developed parallel. I, I was looking for these time capsules and I stumbled upon this palm, and then I kind of felt that there is something which connects these things. So I just went on 
going into both fields and trying to get deeper into it. And what it turns out now is that I try to combine these both interests into one. And I'm actually in the process of um, making a time capsules for time capsule for the tree mm. itself oh. that I want to bury just next to it. Oh, yeah. And then the time span that this capsule should be in the ground will be determined for another hundred years, which um, with 100% of certainty will be unburied at a point when the tree will be gone because the tree is already 170 years old. Biolo biologist I talked to was saying that normally a palm tree will be 200 years old and I will die. Wow, I had so no idea. So it might have another 30 years and it will be dead. It already looks quite... No, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not in the best. It's aging gracefully, but so then, so then, but thinking of history, because this is containing history. The first time I saw your work was at um, Catherine Andrews used to run a space called Apartment Two in her home, and you did work that was related to the wallpaper at the White House that was printed in the nineteenth century. I mm -hmm. guess like that crazy twelve landscapey yeah. wallpaper and so that's another historical interest and the, the show at the Belvedere too also which we should talk about yeah. um, actually more than the, the thing at Catherine's but so this history thing seems to be coming up again and again which I hadn't thought of yeah it does it's totally in the base of my work an interest that I'm interested in material that is kind of loaded or has been loaded over time through history and through the projections that we put onto them and which kind of takes them out of the stream of other objects which might be related or even from the same species or something and takes them out of the stream and puts them into this specific position of becoming a witness of something Ooh. and 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 that's why i'm interested in using that and then but putting them into some contextual installations which connects them to a very present view and reflections upon how we deal with the whole notion of history and uh, how we mediatize that, how we materialize it in a way and, and what importance the material has in actually doing, doing this process. Okay, I have to do this because that show at Catherine's was just, just incredible. So David and I went into Catherine's apartment and we were greeted by a young actress who looked just like Jackie O. For those of you who are too young to know who Jackie O is, she was jo John Kennedy's wife, and she was like the hostess at the White House, and she was this petite, demure um, woman. And so this actress greeted us at the door, and you and Catherine, everybody was at the back, and you sort of blew us off, and we thought, okay, great, we'll just walk with this woman. And she took us around the exhibition, and she said, you know, I, I, I worked with whoever the designer was to pick out this wallpaper, and it was very important because it was from a particular period. I'm totally forgetting the period. She had historical countenance for everything she mentioned, and she kept wandering around, and she was sort of, she seemed like maybe she was a little stoned, although she probably wasn't as an actress, but she was acting stoned because maybe Jackie was. And then we kept going, and she engaged us in, like, like charming conversation, but it was clear that we couldn't veer from her direction. It may not have been scripted, but we weren't going to get away until she was done with us. And so we wandered through the living room, then we went into the bedroom, and she patted the bed and she said, I'd really appreciate it if you two would sit here and watch this, this film for a moment. I've, I've discovered, and this is something I convinced John to do, I discovered this psychic or something in Texas who's doing this crazy stuff where he 
makes like images appear on a TV camera when the screen when the cameras pointed at him. It was just nuts. And so we sat and watched it, and there was this actual, I still think it was actual film from the '60s of this Texan doing something. And and Jackie said, "You just sit there, and then when you're done, you can come out and join the party, and I'm going to go in and greet the." greet the other guests. And that just seems like a weird way to present an idea about history. That's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I looked at it in some sort of a, maybe the term activation would be appropriate here. You know, if you have material, if you work with material that's historical and you put it on the walls and then people look at it in a very historical oh, perspective. Yes. But yes. if you have a person approaching you and starting to talk with you about it and and she's obviously in this in this uh, situation staged or kind of playing something mm -hmm. but also still you have to interact with her she speaks to you you can respond you can ask her questions and and this creates a process which activates the works but without it being this kind of you know kind of distance position not of didactic hero. i was yeah, not bored not and oppressed i was charmed and delighted so that's successful because because like historical work it's like identity work it can be so freaking didactic that who cares well so um we're gonna to actually take a break and uh listen to a song by christian meyer this is from way back in 1995 from his very first band named my dreams in chaos and the song is if only you could
Welcome back to The People in Keqiang, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. If you're in Chinatown, Los Angeles, you can listen to The People by setting your dial to 1630 AM or listen to the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio, and we implore you to subscribe, rate, and review the show. The show is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to find out more. Joining us today are Jeff Tuck and Christian Meyer. Christian, can you tell us about the show of yours that was at the Belvedere in Vienna, Austria, uh, which just came down? This invitation was pretty special because, as they uh, called it, it's an intervention. So the space in which I was doing this show is a very loaded space already. It's not like compared to the classical white cube space where you go in with your art and the space itself is kind of trying to be almost invisible or out of context. In this case, the context was very specific. It's in the Belvedere Museum. The Belvedere Museum, to explain it very shortly, is a castle which has been built uh, around 1710 for the famous Prince Eugene, um, a very important uh, political figure for uh, Austria at the time. And he had this big castle built for himself to live in. Uh, later on, this was changed into a museum and now it hosts the Austrian gallery, as they call it. So it's like the museum for Austrian art. Um, the space in which I was invited to make my showing is the so-called Prunkstall. So it's, it's the palace stables. And this space was built for the 10 best horses that Prince Eugene had. So. You could compare this to nowadays a very rich person person having uh, this collection of ferraris and porsches and whatever the best cars that are available and he would have this amazingly nicely built garage uh, to show his visitors his best horses so that's what this stable is about it's a beautiful place except they built in marble in 1710 so it's a it's not just like a yeah. garage like we might be sitting in a garage right now this no, is this amazing beautiful like, baroque yes space. little heads and stuff right yeah like there are sculptures of horses and people alternating exactly. around yeah the on the walls and you still have architecturally you still have the you still see the traces of the horses being in there there's still these you know these pots where they were eating out and there's this little uh, fountain where they were drinking out that's still part of the architecture so if you go in there, you have a very specific experience of a space where you can still feel the purpose that it once had. But at the same time, when they transformed it into a museum, they decided to make this space become the display for the medieval art collection that they have. So these are mainly paintings from the late Gothic uh, period, and they have all been painted for churches. And later on, they have been taken out of the churches and have been brought to the museum. So all these paintings, and it's like you have to imagine a huge black wall covering one whole side of the space. And they are hanging in a very dense uh, salon style. Just, yeah. yeah, salon style. Yeah. There's like, I, th I think, more than 60 pretty big paintings all on wood. And so when I came in there and they told me, you can do something in there, whatever you want to. First, my first idea was it's impossible <laughs> because this place has already too many things <laughs> and everything I could think of is, you know, too much. So one thing that I found the most interesting is that 
this Gothic paintings and this Baroque space didn't really have any dialogue mm. with each other. It was almost like, you know, in opposition to each other. And so I thought, okay, the most challenging thing would be to try to find a way how they start some sort of a conversation with each other. And that's what I tried to do. And then and one thing I became interested in with these paintings was not so much the iconog iconog iconography, uh, done. you know, this whole biblical stories which are expressed in these paintings, but more to look at these paintings as objects and how these objects, this material has been transformed through time. And one interesting story was that most of these paintings have been two-sided. So the wooden boards have been painted from both sides. And when they came into the museum and they were hang on the wall in the way as they do it in museums, you know, straight on the wall, um, they thought, oh, now 50% of the paintings are not visible. That's a pity. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just take a saw and uh, split them in the middle and then we can show both sides or we can even or sell, can one sell the part other half. Yeah, yeah exactly. no, we're rich all of a sudden. And that's what they did. And that's a very brutal act of... When was that, do you know? That started in the late 19th century and went on until the 1930s, amazingly. Wow. So crazy. And I found a picture which was taken in the Belvedere, two guys with a big saw, right. hand saw, and they were just in the process of... That is such an awesome picture. How yeah, fun. it is. I'm going to hack this thing in half. Yeah. So I thought, you know, this is this is interesting that by entering, by leaving the original context and entering the museum context, they have to go through this brutal act of aggression almost in order to fit into the system of a museum display. But and you showed the backs, right? I mean, yeah, you so turned some of them over. Exactly. I uh, my idea was to turn some of them over and show the backsides because what's interesting is that after splitting, these wooden boards were too thin. And they were not stable enough. They were really break, uh, breaking apart in a way. So they had to be stabilized. And so they put all these wooden constructions on the back. Kind of like a lattice work on the back. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Just to yeah, those support are cool. it. And, and Getty, are you listening? You can do this with your collection too. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> kind of cut, just cut some growth johns right down the middle. <laughs> flip them. Oh, no. So by showing some of them with the backsides, I, I did not only you know, kind of give a hint to the history that I was just talking about of these paintings as objects. But also I made visible um, something that would have been or that the visitors looked at as art again. But this looked much more like art that we know from modern times, you know, structural geometric forms, painting as object, painting becoming sculpture. Medieval art is soloate. Exactly. Yeah. So this was the one thing that I did. And then, as I said, I wanted to kind of connect it to the space in a way. And uh, I did this through bringing a material into the space, uh, which has not been there before. And these were wooden, um, um, wooden. They were like staves, but they were pylons. They were pointy, right? Yeah. They were used for the foundations. I look for the word now. I think it was a stave. I think that's what you push down on the ground. Or, or yeah, I guess that's the word. Pylon, right? Piles. Yeah, pylons. Caisson yeah. is the official word, but yeah. Oh, there yeah. you go. So I found them in, I was in Berlin at the time, and I read in the newspaper that there's going to be an auction of these uh, trees, which have been found under what, what once has been the palace of Berlin. 
And this palace has an amazing story. It was built almost at the same time as the Belvedere was. So there was this parallelity of time. But in it had a totally different story because it was destroyed in the Second World War and then they had then it became part of Eastern Germany and the GDR government decided to totally destroy it and on top of it built what which was called the Palace of the Republic. It was the most um, ambitious and the most well-known GDR building mm -hmm. where all the party uh, gatherings would happen. And after the reunification, the new German government decided to again destroy that building and they had the idea to reconstruct the old castle again which are th they're just in the process of doing that and by undigging a new fundament they found all these trees in the ground and they were like oh wow what is that so they they took them out of the earth and they realized this was like put in the ground because it's a very sandy ground and unstable ground and they were put in the ground to stabilize the building on top of them now they didn't know what to do with them and they put them on auction and i bought uh, like around 25 of them. So wait a minute, because here's another parallel. I mean, that's just stupid. These things are historical objects that have been buried underground, not unlike your time capsules. Yeah. And they, they, they were, I'm sorry, that's culturally important. And just like the, the, the guys in the late 19th century who split the paintings, same thing. Yeah. I mean, they just got rid of them because, well, we're not really interested in this right now, never thinking that in 30 years someone might be. Exactly. Yay. So you hoovered them up and I hoovered them up. I brought them to Vienna and then I worked with them in a way in the space that I wanted to kind of almost in a parallel way of what happened to the paintings. I was, I was sawing some of them in the middle. I opened them up. I showed the inner sides, which were still amazingly uh, good quality of wood. I treated the wood with different oils and stuff. Um, and then I put them in a in a in an arrangement, kind of like two ensembles in the space, which were almost in a playful way installed. They were almost like figures in the space. And then suddenly you would have all these parallels happening between the paintings and these wooden backsides and all these constructions, with these piles, which were also once supporting something, but now lost their context. Right, but. They were wet, weren't they? There was something about that. About them yeah, this is why moisture. they have been still in such a good condition because they were in the ground. The ground was wet, but there was no oxygen in sure. down there. Yes, and that's why it's not deteriorated. In another million years, they would have been petrified wood. Yeah, or they stay the maybe. same. There's a high acid, but, con but no, high but acid content, low oxygen content. Exactly. It, it may surprise you to learn that we've talked about this sort of thing on the show before. That's cool. I love about it. mummification. Um, oh. But right, low, low oxygen, high acid equals organic material stays around for a long time. Right? Exactly. But there was trouble about putting them in the museum, right? Because of the moisture? Or maybe Yeah, because wasn't. these medieval paintings, they are so fragile and, you mm -hmm. know, it's wood. So humidity is a problem. Uh, animals, insects are a problem. So these trees had to uh, go through some processes of drying. They had to go into some sort of a gas chamber. It's a bad word, but it's Ooh, the wow. best description I can give. Right. Uh, so everything that's alive in these trees had to be killed. Mm. And this again was kind of something I was interested in in the show. On the one hand, you know, something entering the museum 
is preserved through that. You know, the museum's taking care of it. But it has to die. But to it get has there. to die before, in a way. <laughs> so it's allowed Think to get that. in there. Think about that, you artists out there who desperately want your work in the hammer. Think about it. It has to die. <laughs> Sorry to pick on the hammer. I didn't mean that. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, yes. Now I've just completely stumped myself. Yeah. Hmm. And there was a third part, maybe I described this shortly, because I, uh, I felt important adding something which was not so set in its position yet, but being in a process. So this was an object that I brought to a well in, in England that I'm fascinated by since a long time, because it's known since the medieval ages that it petrifies objects that are in that well, that are hanging in that well. Mm. And in the medieval times, people thought it's a haunted place. Later, it became one of the first big tourist uh, attractions in Britain and uh, nowadays it's a pretty restricted place like in the past people could just come and hang stuff in there and after a few months the things would be petrified it's not real petrification like a petrified wood but it's kind of um, you know it's some sort of is mineralization like on, okay. on the surface it's because there's minerals and they sort yeah. of like okay yeah exactly it's a highly mineral water and that's why it adds on top of the on the surface of the object. So I was bringing a toy. It's a horse head, a toy horse head, bringing there and hanging it in there. And it was hanging like for four months or something. By the time when I went there with my video camera and documented it, just hanging in there, water tripping over it, and it was in this half, half stone, still half soft toy, kind of in betweenness. That's a pretty simple video where the sound was was important the time being expressed through this running water, dripping water but also this object being in this process of again being preserved through being kind of killed right like petrification right. always is also a metaphor of Death. killing yeah. something gotcha. right? well i fr from the work of yours that i've seen and that you've been talking about like i'm i'm really interested in it because it approaches uh the historical narrative as is the memory of, and I think I'm quoting Howard Zinn and maybe Henry Kissinger, I can't remember, both. <clears throat> but it approaches history as the memory of communities or the memory of people and not the memory of the state, right? It's not a history, it's not the history of great men, it's it's the history of people and the history of communities. Is that, that's, you think that's accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. And I'm also very interested in, in, in the things that got forgotten or got lost, you know, because history is always this process of picking out things and then putting them, for example, in, into a museum or into an archive or something. And these ones are picked out and these are ones are the ones who will stand out for the history in the in the future. But there's always things that get lost in the in the, you know, in the meantime. And I'm interested in digging out these lost things and combining them with other things which might have also been lost or something and then creating these new sorts of connections which might create thoughts which are kind of yeah interesting or challenging so 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 uh tell us about so jeff and christian you guys kind of did a collab a collaborative project a kind of a epistolary you know back and forth exchange yes yes and uh, strange, you know, you guys found some really interesting commonalities right. between uh, things you guys are interested in. So, tell us about that. that okay, yeah. That if piece. I, I mean, if 
yes, if I can start. I um, so this goes into the this goes into like history before Christian and I met. I came across photos that this artist had done, where they were photos that the the trick is that he um, strapped cameras to dogs in two cities that are rampant with feral dogs, um, Ulaanbaatar and Oaxaca. And, and the dogs ran around taking pictures, not knowing they were taking pictures. And Christian, the way he expressed it to me is he wanted to document a place and avoid the touristic gaze, um, which I liked. But I didn't know that until I met Christian. So I saw these in like 2008 or something. I came across them in a magazine. And, I, and they were, they totally inspired me in when I first got a camera in 2011, which is a number of years later. But I thought, oh, that guy took pictures that weren't pretty and they were just of the places, just places that somebody was walking by and maybe I could do that too. So I started taking pictures of the ground. I mean, it's not a literal connection like that, but it was all there. And so I got my first camera, which was an iPhone and I wandered around Hollywood and other places taking pictures and it ended up being like when I did studio visits, I would take pictures on before I went in and, and after I left. Um, long story short, at the, at the show at Apartment 2 that, that Catherine Andrews hosted, Kristen and I met, um, and we shared these two projects with each other, and, and Christian was um, kind enough to say, why don't we have a conversation about this? That would be interesting, because at the time I was sort of starting conversations on notes. So he went back to Austria, and here I am in Los Angeles and Hollywood, mm -hmm. and we sent a series of emails back and forth just literally having an email conversation. And then the idea came up as a way to present it both in his magazine, whose name changes every time it's published. Um, the current one is called Acid and is available somewhere. Um, the thing is, he was publishing, he was getting ready to do the next issue of that. And he said, why don't we do this for the magazine and you can do it for notes. And, and I thought, well, why don't we record the conversation, like I would walk around Los Angeles with a microphone or my iPhone and talk into it, reading what I had written, Christian, and he would do the same thing in Austria. And then we would combine that with a, sli a random slideshow of our photos, which is what we did. And so it was presented on notes as a video, um, and it was presented in the magazine as a, a text-based with images. Um, my first publication, it was so cool. So that's how that came about. and. And the, the conversation, I mean, the photos of my photos of the ground and Christian's photos documenting space, we both were doing it for entirely different reasons, but it did have lots of commonality. I yeah, think. I mean, that was the interesting thing that they sometimes look pretty similar because the dog obviously made many pictures of the ground being sniffing sure, around. Yeah. And you always focused on the ground with your pictures. But the starting point were almost the opposite in a way. Because you were so interested in your history, in I was that really city, purposeful. Yeah, your person, personal background, connection to the place, and in my in my position, it was like being in a place that I didn't know at all, and I felt so estranged and kind of so, also like we were talking about my historical interest, but in at that place I couldn't, you know, attach to anything. Mm. It was just too strange to me, mm -hmm. and there was also not enough time to go deeper into it. So it was really this feeling of how can you access it besides being on this pure touristic uh, traces? Ooh, ooh, but you know what? You're still left up 
left with your own impressions and whatever story you make up from looking at the pictures. Of course. And isn't that always the truth? I it mean, is. we think, like museums, we think we're getting facts, and we're not. It's fantasy. It's all made up, and somebody collected it to present a story. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, like the, it's like the way history works. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, but we had, so if I, so, okay, so it's just a cute story, so I have to tell it. I actually kind of met Christian before that, but only, only osmotically, kind of. Um, again, another Catherine Andrews story, doing a studio visit with her. She was bragging about having done this project with Galen Gerber for this Austrian magazine, and I was totally in love. And she wouldn't tell me the name because Catherine is really, really resistant to giving out information. So I raced home and I spent, I swear, five or six hours on the internet trying every version of the word magazine in Austria that I could. And I came out and I found Zeitschrift, the, um, the website. And I sent an email to the email address and I got a cheerful email the next couple of days saying, um, Hi, Jeff, my name is Alexander. I'm in Los Angeles now and I have copies of the magazine if you'd like to have one. And, and so that's, that's how I got a copy of the magazine. And I met Alexander Wolf, who is an artist who was also based in Germany, not in Austria, but is French with Christian. And then in a strange way, the conversation expanded because I Googled all the artists having to do with the magazine and put their websites on Notes on Looking. And the one I got for Christian is some really nice person in, Aust in Germany named Christian Meyer who makes really zooty, techy work. Nothing to do with Christian Meyer, the one I'm <laughs> talking right. to right now. And Alexander, when he saw my post, he, he like, I could hear the laughter in his email saying, Jeff, oh my God, that's so cute that you do that. It's really wonderful because like, you're getting the word out. But that's not Christian Meyer. You should look into that. Um, so yeah. There it is. <laughs> yeah, and can, Christian, can you tell about tell us about the the publishing that you've yes. been doing? Yeah, totally. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You brought really a lot of books, it. actually. There's a lot of books on the table right now. It's yeah, great. I brought about everything I had here, but the magazine started already a long time ago. Uh, it's more than ten years ago, and I'm doing this together with six other artists, and we all studied at the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna at the time. Mm -hmm. So it was really like the student project that we started. And awesome. The original idea was we were in Vienna and we were, you know, all interested in art. And so we were also, of course, interested in artist publishing and in art, art magazines. And at the time, we felt there was nothing really interesting going on in Vienna. And we had all this, you know, this highly uh, produced art magazines like Art Forum and, and all the German versions of, of that. And, and we thought, OK, this is something totally different, something that we're not really interested in. We want to do something on our own, which would be artists publishing works of other artists and writers. And um, the decisions we made in the beginning was it should not have a name that sticks to the project, but should always change. And it should also not even have the same appearance because we would always uh, change the font mm -hmm. and the name of the font would be the name of the issue. So because we thought the fonts are something very important for publications, but you rarely think about it unless it's a very, you know, very unusual font. But mostly you don't even uh, get to read in the magazine which font has been used. Mm -hmm. So in our case, the name of the font is big on the cover and that's how it will, will be named. And since then we have done like, I think, I don't know, 27 or 28 issues, 28 different fonts. And uh, we've invited a, yeah, a pretty big crowd of artists and writers 
since then and and so i have to, I have to ask like in choosing the font for the like the particular issue like is there because uh you know this issue i'm looking at right now is acid which is surprisingly like sober sans serif <laughs> for the word acid but but i mean how, how much like i mean because i i mean i don't know as much as i should but yeah. i love i mean i love font nerds in general yeah like how much does the font actually reflect or how much are you mm-hmm. thinking about you know the font and the, its history or its whatever yeah. or is it just like art. what would be the coolest name for yeah. a journal like yeah. acid would be know, the, would be the coolest no, yeah. Yeah. to be honest right. it's it's both yeah okay, <laughs> sometimes yeah. it's this and sometimes it's that yeah. in, in in with acid it's really just we like the name yeah. and the font look kind of good too <laughs> so of course it's always important the name should be f- sounding good yeah and the font shouldn't be like a total shitty. <laughs> font. So there's there's but no there's, there's no version like there's not a Comic Sans <laughs> yet. You know, for example, there's in in this issue we have the this flexi disc in it. Yeah. And there's this track on it by this uh, German sound artist Florian Hacker, and 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 he's kind of interested in acid music and often DJs acid music. So there is some connection. Uh, in other you know, for the other artists, when they're invited, they know what the font is. Ah, okay. And it's open to them if oh. they react to it or if they most most don't. To right. be honest, yeah. most they don't care about it. Squares. Some do sometimes. It's Amazing though them. that you put a flexi disc in the uh, in the publication. <sighs> yes. I was talking to Jeff because uh, I've researched flexi disc bef- flexi disc before, and there's actually only I believe two active flexi-disc press. Don't give away One is in Copenhagen and one is in San Francisco. I'm San not gonna, Francisco. Yeah, I'm not going to say the name of that, that place because like, <laughs> I want to save it for myself. But it's easy to find. Just look up flexi-disc and you're going to find the only two places. But very, it's very particular. Like a lot, of, I think it's a very forgotten form too mm-hmm. because I've had the experience many times of trying to explain to someone younger than me like what a flexi-disc is. Mm-hmm. But it's it's great vinyl. And uh, the idea is that it actually, it's it's soft vinyl, so it literally degrades. Yes, yeah. you get like, like five or six perfect plays. Oh, yeah, okay. I've That's heard, what I was told. I've heard like yeah. 3,000 okay. plays, but... Oh. But I think by I the think time it's more than five. Yeah, yeah I think by the time you're listening to the three thousands play, like, it might like be like like wooden pylons. But in this one's bright yeah. blue, right? It's really bright. It's, it's a beautiful really blue. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jeff Tuck, Christian Meyer, thank you for being on the show. Oh, we boy. really appreciate you, you guys thank coming you. to talk with so us. Thanks so much, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to the people on K Chung, sixteen thirty a.m. We'd like to thank our guests again, Jeff Tuck and Christian Meyer, for joining us today. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. Or go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. And we're going to go out with a song from Los Angeles band Now Cloud. You can find them on Bandcamp. This is from their album Harp. And the song is called Harp 10. Whenever we hear sounds, we are changed. We are no longer the same after having heard certain sounds. And this is the more the case when we hear organized sounds, organized by another human being.
about 1950, it was no longer self-understood that a sound is a sound.